After the warm welcome you gave Scott, I just want to say good morning, church. Oh, thank you. I'm sure you didn't need set up for that. That would have been out of your heart anyway, but good. You know, bubble guns and baker hats I have not, but what I have I bring for you, and that is the preaching of God's word. So, if you would, please turn with me to Isaiah chapter 6. I am eager to preach the gospel out of Isaiah chapter 6. We are continuing our study through uh, uh, the doctrines that define us, what we have called our We Believe series, and today we are studying the doctrine of sin, or the doctrine of the lostness of man, and so the title of our sermon today is just that, The Lostness of Man. Uh, If you read through scripture, if you've done one of those Bible reading plans or worked through a year in the Bible kind of thing, uh, you are inevitably going to run into passages that are difficult to reconcile. Uh, they, you are going to be confronted with um, what at times can seem like the brutality of God's judgment. Uh, passages that can alarm us, confuse us. Why does God respond this way to people? Take, for instance, Nadab and Abihu. These were two men in Israel. Uh, Their dad was Aaron the high priest. Their uncle was Moses. And in Leviticus 10, we are told that Nadab and Abihu took their censers, their priests, they took their censers, laid incense in them, and and offered uh, what Scripture calls unauthorized fire before the Lord. Uh, Literally, it says they offered strange fire. This is not something God had commanded them to do. Uh, They apparently got creative in their offering, and uh, we're told that God did not reprove them, but instead he responded by shooting fire out from his presence and consuming them. And we come across a passage like that, and if you're like me, you kind of think, well, Don't they get any slack? I mean, these are young men. They're just trying to do something for God, it seems like. Uh, You know, their dad's the high priest. Their uncle is Moses. You know, like, but but there's no slack cut for for them. They are consumed by fire. Or Uzzah in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Uh, You may remember that story. The Ark of the Covenant is being transferred on a cart, and uh, the command of God is no man, no person may touch the Ark of the Covenant. And so it's being moved by cart, and the cart hits some kind of pothole in the road, and Uzzah, who is beside the cart, you wonder if it's reflexively, he just reaches out his hand to grab the Ark of the Covenant. He's saving it from falling to the ground, and so doing, transgressing the law of the Lord. But what is he supposed to do? Let the Ark of the Covenant fall to the ground? Reaches out his hand and grabs it. And we're told the anger of the Lord is kindled against him, and immediately he's struck dead. There are many other examples like this in Scripture. There's the time Moses was forbidden from entering the promised land because he struck a rock rather than speaking to it. Or the time that kingdom, the whole kingdom of Israel was torn away from Saul because he offered, he made an offering to God that he was not authorized to do. We even see things like this in the New Testament. Uh, Remember Ananias and Sapphira, both struck dead because they lied about how much money they gave to church. And that one hits a little bit closer to home. Who of us have not exaggerated our generosity? 
Or I think of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, Paul tells the Christians there that some in Corinth, some Christians in Corinth were sick and were even dying because idolatry, sexual morality. No, because they were not celebrating the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner. Makes you think again about our celebrating the Lord's Supper every Sunday. To us, many situations in Scripture involve a punishment that doesn't seem to match the crime. In our view, God is too severe. God can be unfair. But why do we feel this way? Why do we question God? Francis Chan notes the following. He writes, We live in a human-centered world among people who see themselves as the highest authority. We're quick to say things like, that isn't fair, because we believe we deserve certain rights as humans. Yet, we give little thought to the rights God deserves as God. We give little thought to the rights God deserves as God. There are things that belong to the Lord. They are His. The Bible calls them holy, which means separate or set apart. They are set apart for God. They include things like offerings that are made to Him or the Ark of the Covenant. God's commandments are holy. His church is holy. His supper is holy. They are all His, and in each of the texts I mentioned, people treated lightly something that was holy, something that was God's. These stories in Scripture are there included in Scripture to show us that there exists something of greater value than our own existence and our own rights as humans. There are things that belong to God. They are holy, and they are holy because God is holy. And since we have all done irreverent things, more irreverent, many of us, than those things I've mentioned, we ought to wonder over how God will respond to us over our fate. What will this holy God do with us? Our passage today is Isaiah chapter 6, and it is one of the most important passages for studying the holiness of God and the lostness of man in his sin and the wondrous mercy that God supplies through Christ Jesus. So, beginning with verse 1, I invite you to follow along. I'll read through verse 8. Let's listen now. This is the Word of God. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of His robe filled the temple. Above Him stood the seraphim, 
Each had six wings. With two, he covered his face. With two, he covered his feet. And with two, he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us. Then I said, Here I am. Send me. Will you pray with me now? Our Father and most holy God, we come before you this morning wanting to learn about you. Uh, But more than just getting knowledge in our head, Lord, we We want you to open up the eyes of our hearts that we might see you and know you and be bowed down before you and be filled with gratitude that you do not treat us the way that we deserve, but richly provide for us in Jesus. So we ask that you would come now and fill us with your Holy Spirit as we study your word. Help us to see, help us to know, help us to learn, help us to grow. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the death of Uzziah in our passage triggered a national crisis for Israel. Many saw this as a catastrophic event. Their king had died, and he was one of Israel's few good kings. They did not have many good kings. Many of them were wicked. Some of them were weak. But for the most part, Uzziah had been different. He was anointed king at the age of 16, if you can imagine that. Um, I look out at some of our 16-year-olds and try to imagine you as kings and queens. Uh, And this isn't Narnia, so it's kind of hard for me to imagine that. 16, crowned king. And Uzziah reigned for 52 years, which is something for us to reflect on since we're used to presidents who are in office for four or maybe eight years. Um, 52 years with the same monarch. And those years were prosperous and secure years. Uh, Uzziah had expanded the borders of Israel. He had built out the infrastructure of the nation, leading to a level of prosperity that was only rivaled by the reigns of David and Solomon. So he was a prosperous king. He was a good king uh, until the very end, until the last uh, season of his life. 
In 2 Chronicles 26, we're told that Uzziah became proud in his strength, and like Saul did before him, Uzziah arrogated to himself the role not given to kings. He took the role of a priest. He dared to enter the house of God, and he took an incense and, uh, and put or took a censer, put incense in it, and offered, again, strange fire to the Lord, fire that he had not uh, commanded or ordained. And we're told that the anger of the Lord broke out against Uzziah in that moment, and he was immediately struck with leprosy that broke out over his body, so that for the rest of his days, the rest of his few short days, he had to live in a house by himself outside the royal residence, cut off from the people of God and excluded from the house of the Lord. Uh, he had a tragic and, tragic and sad ending, but the prosperity and the security he had gained for Israel was real so that when he died, it was a time of national mourning, but it was also a time of uncertainty. What was next? Who was next? What would happen? Rumors were already spreading from the north of Assyria's ambition, whispers of her king's hunger for Israel's wealth. So there was grieving in Israel, but there was uncertainty. There was unease as well. And it was in those times of uncertainty and unease that the Lord gave to the prophet Isaiah this vision. And so we want to look at this vision under three points today. The first is the holiness of God. The holiness of God. Verse 1 says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. So he saw the Lord. Let's return to a distinction we made last week. You'll notice that the word Lord here, and then again down in verse 8, if you're looking in your Bibles, here in verse 1 and down in verse 8, is written differently than it appears in verses 3 and 5. And by this, the translator is telling us that Though we're using the same word in English, in Hebrew there was actually two different words used. When we see Lord written in small caps, or I mean all caps, uh, it is a reference to his sacred name, Yahweh. I am who I am. But when we see Lord written with lowercase letters, it's usually translating the word Adonai, which is not a name for God, but a title of God's, and it means sovereign one. Uh, Like king, but more like king of kings. And so we should note the irony of how this begins here in verse 1. He says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the king. I saw the Lord. I saw the sovereign one. The earthly king is gone, but now he sees the real king, and he is seated on his throne. The, The earthly king is dead. He's in the ground, but the real king is still ruling. He is enthroned. God is enthroned on high, he rules absolutely, and his dominion is an everlasting dominion. Uh, Psalm 115 says, our God is in heaven and he does all that he pleases. He is the sovereign one and his sovereignty is total. Isaiah sees the Lord sitting on a throne and sees him high and lifted up. This speaks of his supreme exaltation. The glorious display of his royalty. And not only that, but Isaiah says that he sees the train of his robe filling the temple. Now, 
This is, yeah, not to be irreverent, this is not God's bathrobe that we are talking about here. This is a robe of a different sort. And since we're not very familiar with royalty in the United States, uh, we need a little bit of a, a lesson here on what we are being told. Uh, robes, uh, the, the royal robe, of, was always meant to signify the majesty, the wealth, the grandeur of a royal. So, for instance, when Elizabeth was crowned queen back in 1953 at Westminster Abbey, there was uh, a procession of people that followed her down the center aisle, and she was attired in this magnificent gown with a train trailing behind her, a, a robe that was 36 feet long. 36 feet long. Made of purple silk velvet and embroidered with 18 different kinds of gold thread. I thought there was just gold thread. I didn't know there's 18 different kinds of gold thread. And it took the Royal School of Needlework which is a thing over in England, apparently, the Royal School of Needlework, more than 3,500 hours to make this robe. That means they worked on this robe for the equivalence of almost 146 days. The robe, 36 feet long, was so heavy that it took six maids of honor to carry the robe behind Elizabeth. So all that, 36 feet long, 146 days to make, all of that was supposed to signify, it was supposed to tell the people something of her grandeur, her majesty, but Isaiah, the prophet, looked and saw the king of kings sitting on his throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe wasn't 36 feet long, it was one that filled the whole temple. So this is symbolic, it's a supernatural vision, but it is meant to display to us the, the infinite and transcendent majesty of God. He is altogether sovereign and infinitely above his creation. And then in verse 2, we read this fascinating thing about how above him stood these seraphim. Seraphim literally means burning ones, and in Scripture, fire is used as a symbol for holiness. So here are these, these flaming angels standing around God, flying around Him, actually. And Isaiah says that with two, they covered their faces. In light of His brilliant glory, even these angels could not bear to look. You know, when today we're told, you know, not to look at the sun directly, because if you do, you'll hurt your eyes, right? And when Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, uh, Luke tells us that the glory of Christ that appeared to him that day was brighter than the noonday sun. And you remember that Paul's eyes were, in fact, he couldn't see until he was miraculously healed. The glory of God is so intense that not only people, but angels have to shield their eyes from the blinding, blazy glory of his presence. And so with two, they cover their eyes, and then two, they cover their feet. When the angel of the Lord appeared to Moses in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush, we're told God called out to Moses from the bush, saying, Moses, Moses, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. 
And obviously it wasn't the sand that made this place holy ground, it was the presence of the Holy One. God was there. And so when creatures come into the presence of God, whether they be man or be they angels, they must cover their feet for they are on holy ground. With two they cover their face, with two they cover their feet, two they fly, and then in verse three we read that one calls to another and says, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. I love this picture that we're given here of the seraph. You know, one is over here around God, and one is over here, and one is over here, and one is over here, and they're calling to each other. Holy is a holy and holy. There's this chorus of holiness being shouted, proclaimed over God. Now, this was all done as a way of emphasizing the holiness of God. When we want to emphasize something, when we're communicating something, we want to emphasize something. Uh, we use all kinds of, of tools to emphasize things in our communication, right? Like we might put something in bold or we might underline it or, you know, in our modern ways, we, we use little emojis and, and so we send little happy faces or little burning faces, you know, you're not home on time, where are you? Um, and so we emphasize something of what we want to say with a Well, Jewish culture had their own ways of emphasizing and the most popular way, the most common way to do that was to repeat something. And so this is why Jesus, when he's teaching, would often begin by saying, truly, truly, I say to you. In other words, he's, listen, this is important. The emphasis through repetition. Or the Apostle Paul, when he was writing uh, one of his most severe letters to the Galatians, uh, he told the Galatians, uh, he wrote, they were threatened by a false gospel. He says, if an angel from heaven, if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be damned. And then Paul says, again, this is really important. I say to you, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So they used repetition to emphasize things. They repeated themselves. But here in our passage, for the only time in all of the Hebrew Bible, equality is raised to the third power, to the third superlative. The Lord of hosts is holy, holy, holy. That God is holy, in one sense, means that it means He's without error. He's pure. He's perfect. There's nothing wrong in our God. He, he doesn't sin. He doesn't make mistakes. He's never had a wrong thought. He's never had a wrong, done a wrong deed. He's never had a wrong motive. Everything in Him is righteous and right and unadulterated and just pure. So holiness in one sense means without error, or purity, or perfect, but its primary meaning is actually separate, or separated from, or set apart. So purity is a, is a part of holiness, but it's not all of it. God is without error, but, but more than that, he is without equal. God is perfect, but he is unparalleled. He is the Lord and there is no other, Isaiah 45, 5. And Isaiah exclaims, the whole earth is full of his glory. 
all of creation is just this continual explosion of the glory of God declared all around us, saying to us, there is a sovereign one, there is a creator, there is an all-powerful one, there is a wise one, there is a righteous and a good one. All around us, creation proclaims the glory of God, that he is sovereign over nature and he is sovereign over nations. God's holiness is a thing that for sinful humans is terrifying to behold. His sovereignty is total. He is absolutely pure and perfect. I mean, note here that when Isaiah saw him, in this time of national uncertainty, this national confusion and unknowing of the future, Isaiah did not see him and say, yes, now I have confidence. Yes, we're in good hands. I'm so comforted in my soul. This was not a chicken noodle soup for the soul moment for Isaiah. This was a moment of true crisis of the soul. See, he realized the problem is not the nations. The problem is a sinful man before a holy God. That's the crisis. And for you... You know, we live in a day where many talk about the cultural crisis that we live in. And there are bad things going on around us. And some of you may have very significant, very real, it's not to make light of this, very real things going on in your lives. But the one true crisis underneath them all is what will you do before a holy God? Because it is destined for man that all die and stand before him in judgment. This vision is a moment of crisis for the prophet. And if God will give us eyes to see the same vision he had, it is a moment of crisis for us. Isaiah was undone by what he saw. He fell apart in the presence of God. And so it is instructive for us to consider Isaiah's own response. Let's look point number two at the lostness of man, the lostness of man. What was Isaiah's response to beholding the glory of God? Well, we already said it it wasn't wow, but woe is me. Woe is me. Isaiah cries out in verse five, woe is me. Woe is a word of judgment. In fact, Only a chapter earlier, back in chapter 5, God had called Isaiah to speak words of woe, words of judgment over sinners in the land. And so chapter 5, verse 8, God speaking through the prophet Isaiah, woe to those who join house to house, who add field to field. In other words, to the greedy who just continue to accumulate more and more. Or verse 18, woe to those who draw iniquity with cords of falsehood. So liars. Verse 20, woe to those who call evil good and good evil. Verse 21, woe to those that are wise in their own eyes and shrewd in their own sight. Verse 22, woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and valiant men and mixing strong drink. God has been commissioning Isaiah to call out these sinners, to call out the drunkards and the the proud and the the swindlers and the liars and the all the sinners in the world. Woe to you! 
But then here, righteous Isaiah, a seemingly righteous man, virtuous man, he stands before a holy God and he's no longer pronouncing woes on the sinners out there. He's pronouncing, woe is me. Woe is me. Isaiah could not bring God's woe to others without declaring God's woe to himself. And there's a lesson for us here. We cannot bring correction or the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ to others until we realize that we are absolutely no better than they are. Woe is me, he cries. Before a holy God, he realizes, I deserve judgment. I deserve wrath. I deserve punishment. The result of seeing God's holiness is that we are truly humbled. That we are broken that we are convicted of our sin. John Calvin describes creation as the theater of the glory of God. Isaiah says that all the earth proclaims the glory of God. And John Calvin says, we live in the theater of the glory of God. It's on display all around us. But in our sin, what we do is we walk through this world willingly blindfolded, covering our faces. Because we do not want to see the glory of God. Because if we did, we would know we need to answer to Him. And so we deny God to live for ourselves. Isaiah beheld the holiness of God And R.C. Sproul writes, in that single moment, all of his self-esteem was shattered. In a brief second, he was exposed beneath the gaze of the absolute standard of holiness. As long as Isaiah could compare himself to other mortals, he was able to sustain a lofty opinion of his own character. And friends, don't we do that too? Isn't that the exact same way that we operate As long as we can compare ourselves to other people, we can maintain a lofty opinion of ourselves. I mean, that's what we do. That's what we all do. We compare ourselves to others to try and feel good about ourselves. At least I'm not like them. Or I'm pretty good. I'm a pretty good person. On what standard? Well, as compared to this person over here or that person over there, or Isaiah that might say, well, to all those other people I called out. You know, the woe are they who are wise in their own eyes and heroes at drinking and call evil good and are greedy, you know. Compared to them, I'm pretty good. But comparison with others never reveals who we truly are. Teenagers, young adults, that's a lesson to learn early in your life. Comparing yourself to others never reveals who you truly are. It's only putting masks over who you are. Only a vision of the holiness of God reveals who we truly are. Sproul continues, The instant Isaiah measured himself by the ultimate standard, he was destroyed morally and spiritually annihilated. He was undone. He came apart. His sense of integrity collapsed. Woe is me, he declares, for I am lost. I am lost. This is the lostness of man. We are all lost before this holy God. I mean, just to go back to Genesis, only three chapters into the the Bible, only mere moments after we read about the unhindered communion our parents Adam and Eve enjoyed with God, just a few short verses later, we find the same Adam and Eve questioning God's word, slandering his goodness, and spurning his authority. Did God actually say? 
they wondered in their hearts. Let's eat from the tree, they decided. God doesn't know what's best for us. We know better than him. Even if did God say, or even if God did say, don't eat from the tree, let's do it anyway. He's not Lord over us. We can do what we want. Now, our first parents questioned God's word. They slandered his goodness. They spurned his authority. And humans have been doing this ever since. We all do this. What happened in Genesis 3 just ripples through all of history and each of our own lives. Just take any of the Ten Commandments that you want to and start to apply them to your own life without giving yourself excuses. So that God's testimony stands against us is that we are alienated from and hostile towards God, Colossians 1.21. We are slaves to sin, John 8.34. We are dominated by Satan, 2 Timothy 2.26. We are lovers of darkness, John 3.20, who have been darkened in our understanding, Ephesians 4.18. Our minds are depraved, Romans 1.28. We are blinded to the truth by the God of this world, 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. Our hearts are disordered, Romans 1.26. The wicked passions of our flesh wage war against our souls, 1 Peter 2.11, and we defile our bodies with each other, Romans 1.24. I mean, I could just keep going on. This is the humbling testimony that Paul gives in Romans 3, 10 through 18, speaking of the lostness of man. He declares, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together. They have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery and the way of peace. They have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, our problem is not that we make a few bad choices. Our problem is that we are at the very core of our being sinfully lost, cut off from God, condemned by God, and consequently destined for hell. Isaiah cries out, woe is me, for I am lost. That word for lost he uses, the root of it is that he's silenced. And you imagine him there standing, seeing this vision of a holy God with the seraphim singing over the Lord, holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah saying, I can't join in. I'm not worthy to praise such a one. Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. If you're having traction or having a hard time getting traction with our talk about sinfulness in your own sinfulness today, the lostness of man, just, just evaluate your own use of words, unclean lips. Think about the words that you say. Think about the words that you type. Think about the words that you fail to say. Words of sinful judgment. Words of anger. Words that destroy others and lash out in anger, tearing people down. Words of worry. Words of fear. Words of anxiousness. Words of arrogant boasting. Words of self-exaltation. And again, cowardice. 
No words spoken when they should be. Our speech reveals our heart, and our words reveal our need, that we are a people of unclean lips who need cleansing. In light of a holy God, we're in a desperate situation. Man is lost. Well, praise the Lord, the passage doesn't end there. And that the good news has to start with bad news, but doesn't end there. Because now the table's been set for the Lord to respond in mercy and seek us out. So we end with point number three, the gospel of Christ. The gospel of Christ. God commands a seraph to take a live coal from the altar and touch Isaiah's lips. And then he declares over him, behold, your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Now that sounds like good news, but before we rush into it and exult over it, we should consider the scandal of such a statement. If Isaiah is guilty, if he is a responsible sinner in the presence of a righteous God, how can he be declared innocent? If God is holy, if he does everything right and is always just in all his ways, how can he look at a guilty sinner and declare him innocent? Even as sinners, we have some sense of right and wrong, and we expect rights to be praised and wrongs to be punished, and we expect God to do the same. So how can God in his holiness look at us in our rebellion and say, innocent? How does God work that out? Or as Paul asks in Romans, how does the just justify the unjust? Well, we're told God sends a seraph with a burning coal taken from the altar. This was to symbolize the temple and the entire sacrificial system through which God made atonement for sin through substitution. How can God declare the rebellious to be righteous? Well, only through one way. There must be a substitute. Someone or something must die in our place. Someone or something must pay the wages of our sin. They must bear our punishment in our place. Only a just God can declare us justified if the punishment has been paid for our sins. And so in the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices symbolize this payment. Blood of bulls and goats were spilled to symbolize our atonement through someone else, something else, sacrifice. But the problem was no animal and no number of animals was ever enough to atone for all our sins. Every year the lamb would be slaughtered for atonement to, to, to take away the sins of the last year, but there were still the sins you were going to commit that day and tomorrow and the next, and there would never be enough bulls and goats. What was needed was a perfect sacrifice. What was needed was a permanent sacrifice. And such is the grace of God that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth not a seraph, but God sent forth his own son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law. And through the substitutionary death of Christ on the altar that is Calvary, where the Lord of glory was crucified for our sins, guilt is taken away and sin is atoned for. Friends, Christianity is not the story of lost men and women seeking out a way back to God. There are no seekers. It is the story of a gracious God seeking out lost men and women and making a way for them back to himself. God sees us in our sin 
God knows we are lost. God knows we are ruined. So God acts on our behalf. God takes the initiative. God pays the price for us. God pays our penalty. God dies in our place. And when he does, our sin is gone forever. Our guilt is taken away. The blood of Jesus has atoned for all our sins. And this holy God, perfect in purity, yet full of grace, would have you know here today, whoever you are, whatever you've done, heaven is not about being, heaven is not about being good enough to get into it. God does not have a standard that he hopes you attain to, that if you can just be this good and not, not drop down this low, then you get in. But God does not grade on that kind of a curve. Uh, what you need to understand is that we will never be good enough to reach heaven. We will never be good enough to be in the presence of a holy God. Yet God has purchased forgiveness for us through the precious blood of Jesus Christ. You don't have to do anything but believe in Jesus. Repent of your sins, believe in Jesus, and your sins are completely atoned for yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Amen. An erring Christian, sinning Christian, Christian who has sinned this week, who has sinned today, who has sinned maybe in this service, and you feel like you are a failure, yet again you have sinned. But the good news for you is Jesus has paid it all. He already has. Jesus has paid it all. Or maybe you are in a season where you have been more aware of sin in your life than grace in God. And if that's you, take heart. Your guilt has been taken away. Your sin has been atoned for. Jesus has paid it all. He is a perfect and a permanent sacrifice. Our sins, they are many. His mercy is more. It's not that our sins are not many. Our sins are many. Your sins are many. It's just that his mercy is more. I love this quote by Charles Spurgeon. Listen to this. He says, you cannot sin so much as God can forgive. If it comes to a pitched battle between sin and grace, you shall not be so bad as God shall be so good. I will prove it to you. You can only sin as a man, but God can forgive as a God. You sin as a finite creature, but the Lord forgives as the infinite creator. Dear Christians, our lives are a pitched battle between sin and grace. And the gospel of Jesus Christ comes to us and declares the triumph of sovereign grace. Exactly because God is the Holy One, He is the Sovereign One, seated on His throne, high and lifted up, the train of His robe fills the temple, God is incomprehensibly holy, and yet God is gloriously merciful. And then our passage ends with Isaiah the prophet saying, that's too good of a news to keep to myself. I gotta share this. I gotta make this known. I gotta be the one that takes this out. And that's the proof that you actually get this. That it's actually real to you. That it's not just something you understand in your head, but it's something you've accepted in your heart. When this is news that's too good for you to keep to yourself, but that has to be shared. And so our passage concludes where we'll conclude the sermon here today with God's call. In verse 8, for the first time in this passage, God himself speaks. He says, And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? 
And who will go for us? And then I said, Here I am. Send me. Here I am. Send me. Friends, mission springs out of a sense, an awareness of our own brokenness and our amazement that God healed us. Real mission, true ministry springs out of an awareness of our own sin and God's grace to us. So that the confession, woe is me, gets transformed by his grace into here I am. And the cry, I am lost, I'm silent, is changed by God's grace into send me, send me to the lost. It is the grace of God that shapes and supplies our mission. Amazed by the grace of God, we go to a lost and an unclean people with the good news that their guilt can be taken away and their sin atoned for because God has taken the initiative and God has acted on their behalf and God has sent his son to save them and God has cleansed our lips that we might go with the good news on it. Friends, do you hear the call of God today? Do you hear him saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? If you hear it, will you answer that call today? Will you answer that call to go out into the workplace and into your neighborhood this week? Will you answer that call that may take you to the nations abroad or into neighborhoods that are not your own? Will you hear the call and say to God, because of your amazing grace to me, here I am, send me. Here I am. Send me. God has cleansed our lips, friends, but it's not just for our good. It is for the good of the neighbors, and it is for the good of the nations. And so let us go out from here today heralding the gospel of peace to anyone who will listen to us. This is our ministry. This is our service. This is our worship.